Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This week on the show, we're going to explore a popular topic that's emerging in mental health care, and this is the potential utility of psychedelic medicines for depression. Our guest this week is an expert on the topic. Dr. Charles Rizan is a medical doctor and serves as the Mary Sue and Mike Shannon Distinguished Chair for Healthy Minds, Children, and Families, and professor in the School of Human Ecology and Department of Psychiatry in the School of Medicine and Public Health at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Rizan also serves as the Director of Clinical and Translational Research for the USONA Institute and as Director of Research on Spiritual Health for Emory University Healthcare and lastly, as a visiting professor in the Center for the Study of Human Health at Emory University in Atlanta. Dr. Rezon's research focuses on the examination of novel mechanisms involved in the development and treatment of major depression and other stress-related emotional and physical conditions, as well as for his work examining the physical and behavioral effects of compassion training. Most recently, Dr. Rezon has taken a leadership role in the development of psychedelic medicines as potential treatments for major depression. With Vladimir Malatik, he's also the author of The New Mind-Body Science of Depression, and that was published by Norton in 2017. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Chuck. It's, it's great to see you. Yeah, nice to see you too, Cassie. Yeah. Um, well, let's go ahead and, and dive in and maybe start with what are some of the major challenges that are faced right now in the field of depression? Where are we at in terms of therapies and where are the gaps that we need to fill? Yeah, well, a lot of gaps, right? So it's interesting. Um, uh, let's see, what's the quickest way to say this? Th there's evidence that depression and related conditions are getting worse in the United States and especially getting worse in young people, right? There's, there's a big mm -hmm. CDC study that came out about adolescent girls just being mired in, in depressive symptoms, suicidality, hopelessness, you know, just that. And there's a lot of interesting reasons or sort of theories for why, I, you know, but if we set that aside, so we, on the one hand, we've got this evidence that in younger adults, especially rates of depression in the United States are increasing. On the other hand, we have data that the, the, the ways we treat depression in the United States, while certainly invaluable, are just remarkably limited, right? So basically, you know, if you look at depression in the United States is mostly treated with medications, right? And most people know things like Prozac and Paxil and maybe Lexapro. These sorts of drugs were discovered accidentally about 70 years ago now. And they've had sort of iterations and they've developed ones that have fewer side effects. But basically all the antidepressants that are on the market with the exception of something called ketamine or esketamine, um, are, they all work by these mechanisms that we've been kind of, you know, sort of flogging on for about 70 years now. And what we know is that uh, if, if you take a group of, of just, you know, give me a thousand people that meet criteria for major depression, only 15 to 25 percent of people that you put on an antidepressant will have a really full response and about 20 percent won't have any response worth talking about and then the rest get this sort of middling response and so mm -hmm. um we know that there's this huge sort of gap in in what we're doing to treat people so on one hand there's the gap of a whole bunch of people don't adequately respond to antidepressants they need something different and then on the other hand 
um, I think many of us are getting increasingly interested in the field in in folks that do very well with a standard antidepressant. You know, let's say I put you on something like Prozac or Paxlovid, and you're one of those people, man. Two weeks later, you're like, "Wow, God, man, I feel like a different person. I'm happy. I'm doing that." That's good, except that at some fairly high percentage over a year or two, you're likely to lose that effect. And then what do you do? You know, and so then, yeah. right? Tachyphylaxis, and then. Even more so, what studies suggest is that if you do get that kind of response and you stand an antidepressant for a while, that when you try to stop it, um, your risk of crashing into depression again is really high. And it may be higher than if you'd never taken an antidepressant in the first place. That There's circumstantial wow. data to support that. That has never been definitively proved, but, but it's very worrisome. Right. And so, yeah, again, you know, it, these agents save lives. So we thank God we have these these antidepressants. Um, thank God we have psychotherapy, although getting access to psychotherapy can be very hard for a lot of people. Right? So there's a huge unmet treatment need in depression. And it seems to be a condition that's worsening in our country. Yeah. Well, aren't there also on some of these antidepressants, aren't there black box warnings that some of them, some people can have a bad reaction to these? Mm-hmm. On every single one. About- yeah. Okay. Yeah, on every single one of them, there's a black box warning. And that comes from the observation that younger people uh, up to about the age of 25 who are put on standard antidepressants are at a, not a large, but a mildly increased risk of developing suicidal-like behavior. You don't see it in folks that are older and in folks that are my age, once you start moving into sadly older adults, as we now say, um, there actually is clearly a, a protective effect against suicide. But in younger people, and for reasons nobody fully knows, there's just this little signal. And whether that's because these agents can sometimes make people kind of manic uh, and younger mm-hmm. people who are really depressed are more likely to have what we call bipolar disorder, which is these sort of agitated, hypermanic phases and depressions. And whether mm-hmm. the antidepressants are sort of activating that or whether it's something else, we don't know. But anyway, that's, that's why they have the black box warning is because okay. they do have this association. Okay, so we know that antidepressants definitely help people, but there are risks and, you know, they really need to be accompanied with with psychotherapy, but that's really hard to access right now. I know wait times are exceptionally long across the country right now. Um, This is something that, you know, as a mom of teens, this is something that parents are talking about. It's like when you have kids that are dealing with this, um, there are challenges just to get access to care. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I've got teen kids too. I know it's really a challenge. Yeah. Okay. So we're, we're dealing right now with an era of 70 year old drugs that were kind of discovered by accident. And you're though interested in this next generation or next iteration of psychotherapeutics. And, you know, are these truly new? Some would argue, no, they're, you know, some of these have been in use for millennia. Um, what can you tell us about this emerging field of psychedelic therapy um, for treating depressive disorders? Yeah. Well, first thing I can say is this absolutely not new. And in yeah. fact, you know, we uh, we owe, if this all goes forward, we owe an incredible debt of gratitude to indigenous cultures who have been using these agents for spiritual purposes, healing purposes, a variety of things for hundreds of years and probably thousands of years, right? And, and yeah. there's a whole debate in the field about cultural appropriation and a whole bunch of things that are really interesting that we can talk about. Um, so yeah, th- these are these are the first psychotropic agents probably that humans used on any sort of regular basis. Um, 
And so, uh, you know, what I often say about my personal research is that I, I'm actually not discovering new things. I, I'm like a retread guy. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I'm trying to repurpose ancient practices to see whether they can be converted into card-carrying antidepressant modalities. That, that's really, frankly, what mm -hmm. I do. I, I wish I was one of these people that was discovering like really new, specific, novel, you know, molecular mechanisms, but uh, that's above my pay grade. Uh, you know, I don't have that kind of expertise. So absolutely, psychedelics are that everything old is new again. They are definitely old and they're even old in our culture. So little mm -hmm. known fact is that, you know, the psychedelics were, of course, the first the first one to really make the mainstream in Western world was LSD, which was synthesized by Albert Hoffman in, in the 30s and then discovered as a psychedelic in the early 40s. And then psilocybin was discovered uh, when a guy named uh, uh, Gordon Wasson went down to a village in Mexico called Watlet Jimenez and was convinced a curandera to give him a, a, a psilocybin mushroom experience. And then kaboom, right? Of course, there was the, the explosion of, of the cultural stuff in the 60s. But less well known is that there were at least a thousand studies done on psychedelics as 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 mental health relevant things really sometimes, yeah so sometimes they were looked at and initially they were looked at interestingly as a way to induce temporary psychosis and the idea was that you know uh, you, the psychiatrist could take lsd and understand the schizophrenic patients better because he or she would spend you know 12 hours in a psychotic state um it was actually folks up in canada saskatchewan of all places that that began to look at the possibility that psychedelics might have therapeutic benefit and and interestingly enough they they came to that through a through an assumption that turned out to be wrong but they got good hmm. results anyway the assumption was that they had observed that people that have alcohol alcoholics if they stop drinking and they go into what are called the dts you know the delirium tremens where you're seeing stuff and you're you're out of your mm -hmm. mind if it doesn't kill you, a lot of times people quit drinking after that uh, because it's so horrible, right? So mm -hmm. they thought, well, maybe the induction of psychosis temporarily with a psychedelic like LSD would make people quit drinking. And so they tried it and it looked pretty promising. And the other place in the 50s and early 60s where there was research that suggested benefit was in people that were dying and were struggling with sort of end of life anxiety. You'd give them a psychedelic experience and it would change. They would feel more comfortable about, about dying basically, right? And so... Um, uh, so there was a whole bunch of research and, and really the discovery of serotonin as an important neurotransmitter mm -hmm. was very much associated with the discovery of psychedelics. So there was this sort of hidden um, world of psychedelic research that then got expunged. You know, so like when I trained in psychiatry in the 1990s, um, nobody said anything about psychedelics. We were like traumatized, you know, like sometimes people are traumatized and forget their trauma. So, yeah, it, it's definitely even in Western circles, it's an old treatment. Yeah. Do you do you feel that that some of that um, I don't know bias against psychedelics still exists in in in, in medicine? I and mean, you weren't taught about their these studies when you were in medical school or in training. Um, do you feel like there's still a bias against it or a, a fear or I don't I don't know how to quite say mm -hmm. it, but there's distrust or. Well, so that's really interesting. Um, yes, I mean, certainly there is in certain um, in certain circles. But what I actually see happening, which is what actually concerns me more at this point, is sort of an over-optimistic hope that these are going to solve all of life's problems. You know, one of the things you learn as a psychiatrist is that opposites are often very similar to each other. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that if, if, if something goes way this direction, 
you can expect a rebound the other direction, right? So these agents were stigmatized and castigated and all. And then all of a sudden, you know, when there was this evidence they might be useful, complete flip. Oh my God, they're perfect. They're wonderful. They're going to save the world. This is the answer to all mental health problems. And it, it, it cuts across the political spectrum, right? I mean, one of the strangest experiences I've had in psychedelic land was about a year ago, um, this group of veterans who were uh, using psychedelics offshore in, in Central America as treatment for for uh, special forces people brought Rick Perry with them. And you may remember Rick Perry as the extremely conservative governor. From governor. Texas. Yes. Right. <laughs> He's a huge proponent. He's a major proponent of psychedelics. He described himself. Really? Yeah. He, said, he described himself as a knuckle-dragging conservative. I mean, the guy is as, you know, hardcore conservative but you know he told the story that was really interesting that that when he was governor he put out this sort of kind of faux invitation that if you were a, a service person that was struggling with ptsd come by the governor's mansion so some kind of i can't remember why the guy was famous maybe he'd been an athlete but he showed up and rick perry took him in and tried to treat him and everything failed and finally he heard about psychedelics and he sent this special ops guy down to you know costa rica or someplace and he got a psychedelic therapy and he was cured and he, so Rick Perry was like, oh, my God, this isn't about politics. This is about taking care of our troops, right? So interestingly, Texas, which, as you know, is politically a very conservative place, was the first state in the country to mandate that that state funds be spent on psychedelic research. Yeah, wow. yeah, the whole, the whole thing going there. So so it is, it's, just, it's just flipped. It's become like this is going to be like the salvation of the world. And, and you know, I can tell you it's not going to be. I can 100% guarantee that 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 whether or not psychedelics turn out to be useful in our sort of treatment armamentarium and i do think they will be they're not going to solve all of life's problems and they're not going to fix everybody up and they're going to have adverse events and effects so i worry about the overselling hype which is really and you know another place you can see this hype is that uh, when i got into this field in 2015, there were two entities that were trying to get FDA approval for a psychedelic. One was a, something called MAPS, you know, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. They were a nonprofit and they were working on MDMA, ecstasy, as a treatment with therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. I'm involved uh, in, in as a research director at something called USONA Institute in, in Madison, which is a nonprofit medical research organization. We were trying to develop psilocybin, we still are, as a treatment for major depression. There were two of us. We were both nonprofits because we felt like this was going to be kind of public service. I mean, who's, who's going to develop a drug that's been around for so long that's off patent? How wrong we were. There's like a hundred for-profit, ruthless, you know, rapacious competitive for-profit entities in this space now trying to patent everything including <laughs> couches that you lay on to take the drugs so there there was i mean really literally a couple billion dollars flowed into this space and and now we're seeing wow. like a dot-com bust though in the space where a lot of these little companies are going out of business because the excitement was so extreme they didn't figure out like well how are we going to actually make money doing this you know they didn't have a value proposition as we say really right so i worry about yeah. the overhype because one of the things i've seen and i've seen it with meditation and other things is if you think something's going to be the answer to everything and it isn't then you you, they, you toss the baby out with the bathwater. sometimes you go ah you know, it didn't live up to my expectations. So I'm more worried about the overselling than I am about the stigma at this point. Yeah. I mean, what you're saying reminds me of kind of the cannabis boom that happened, you know, yes. just before the psychedelics boom. I, I, as you know, I do research on anti-infective medicinal plants, and I can't tell you the number of talks where I get questions from, you know, from, from the lay audience about, 
well, what about cannabis? I'm like, it's, it's going to make you feel better, but it's not going to cure your infection. (laughs) It's not going to cure your cancer. Right. So, Uh um, and you see this swing too with, um, you know, huge amounts of, of, of private industry and, and a lot of kind of, you know, a lot of us in the field think of cannabis as kind of the wild west right now with all of the, the edibles and poor control over production of a lot of these products. And so I guess that's one of my fears as well is the overhype and potential ways this may be rolled out, depending on levels of legalization, we want to make sure even something in nature can be dangerous if it's given in the wrong doses or wrong formulation or is, you know, consumed in the wrong way. Um, are you, are you concerned about that as well for second? Oh, absolutely. Oh yeah, sure. Sure. So we can actually talk about this a little bit. It, it is interesting yeah. how it, you, you do see this with cannabis, right? Where, you know, this sort of wild West crazy uh, and, and an over overhype of any potential. Overhype. So, so psychedelic so psychedelics are different than cannabis in this way, which is that there is now a rapidly growing database to show that they do have they do really seem to have therapeutic effects, right? And so, mm-hmm. so and that comes from the fact that you know cannabis, I guess other than the, and I'm blocking on the name of it, but you know the 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 the, the CBD thing that's got FDA approval for seizures. I, I Right. So that went through the FDA gauntlet, but, but otherwise cannabis didn't, it all kind of came through legalization. So psychedelics until pretty recently, were actually going quite the opposite route. USONA, MAPS, all these commercial entities, mm-hmm. we're like little drug companies. We're trying to get the FDA to approve them. And for the FDA to approve something like this, you have to do these, these unbelievably crazy, rigorous studies, right? I mean, it, it, it'd be no different than trying to get approval for a regular antidepressant. So, so those studies are beginning to show that I can take somebody that has a, a bad depression, even people that have failed other antidepressants, and I can give them a single dose of something like psilocybin. And if I give them a high dose that they have a really powerful psychedelic experience, most patients will get a significant benefit in terms of a reduction in depression. That benefit can last for weeks to months. So, wow. so there's already this sort of more like robust evidence that these agents actually do have therapeutic properties. But... But they also have they also have risks, and they also have some risks of of use in circumstances that can be dangerous, right? So while we were busy doing this sort of sort of get that smile off your face FDA straight ahead stuff, these legalization efforts began to emerge. And first, of course, they were just these sort of decriminalization efforts in Denver and then in in mm-hmm. Oakland. But the real game changer was this law that was passed in Oregon now two or three years ago, which basically legalized the use of psilocybin in very, very particular settings by people without a, without a prescription, without FDA approval, right? And the, so this Oregon measure, which is going to start delivering people actually doing this, taking it by the end of this year, will allow people, anybody from the United States can come to Oregon. And if you have to, if you have an approved, a state approved sitter, somebody who's going to stay with you, and if you have mushrooms that you bought from a state approved uh, grower, you mm-hmm. go in, you sit with, you know, you sit with the sitter, you take the mushrooms, boom, you have a psychedelic experience. And that's that. And, and so this wow. is really 
interesting, right? Are these so, are these mental health professionals? These sitters? I mean, are they uh, engaging in psychotherapy during this, or they're just kind of watching you to make sure that you don't hurt yourself so while you're experiencing that, this? <laughs> right. So the most fascinating to me part of this Oregon deal is that yes, some of the sitters will be you know professional mental health people, but you don't have to be. You have to go through I can't remember how many hours, but it's like a hundred hours, something like that, of specific training. So they mm -hmm. there's little training institutes, and you go and you learn about psychedelics. But no, you don't have to have any any degree that's relevant and interestingly if you do have a medical degree you cannot bring it to bear on your dosing of oh. people yeah Ther specific therapies by my reading of the law are specifically uh prohibited um yeah so you can kind of hold the person's hand and tell them to think about what it means to them but no you, you actually cannot you cannot you cannot officially do it medically which is fascinating because I can promise you that a whole bunch of people are going to come with with post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety. I mean, when, in my what, line. What about other medications? I know this is a big concern I have for the use of ayahuasca because when you combine monoamine oxidase inhibitors in ayahuasca with other drugs, you can have really dangerous effects. Now, I don't know if there are issues with psilocybin no, in drug drug interactions or is that kind of a safer no, route? Not not to the same degree. We don't fully mm -hmm. know yet. You know, the, the, what they call the DDI studies where you, the FDA makes you look at, well, what if you toss some psilocybin in a test tube with some Prozac? You know what happens? Yeah. Those those are being done. They're, we don't the know. The test tube being the human. Yeah. We don't know the answer to that. There, there, there's been a study that the Compass Pathways, one of the major commercial entities in the space, did a small study of 19 people where they the people were on chronic antidepressants and they dosed them with a high dose of psilocybin. And people were fine. They got okay. the response. Right. So psilocybin and SSRIs are probably not a physiologically dangerous combination. Mm -hmm. There's some discussion that they may blunt the effect of the psychedelics and therefore weaken their antidepressant effect. But nobody's that that's also semi-hypothetical. Mm -hmm. So but for some of them, absolutely. And, you know, so Colorado, which is the second state to pass the legalization thing, has I, I don't fully understand this yet, but Ibogaine. Which is in which is an odd boga from I think that's a plant from, from West Africa. Africa. Yeah, mm -hmm. from Gabon, yeah. mostly, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know that shows promise as a treatment for opiate disorders, but the hitch is that if you cheat and you take an opioid and then you take the uh, the ibogaine, um, that's a lethal combination. A lot of people die from that, right? So oh, there's no. there there's yeah. some really interesting sort of stuff there. So yeah, yeah I, I mean, and I think the race is on frankly, whether legalization is going to be the primary way that these agents get into the world or whether it's going to be uh, FDA approval. In Australia, the government approved psychiatrists to use psilocybin for, for depressed patients, for treatment-resistant mm -hmm. depressed patients. That's going to start within the year. No, no equivalent of FDA approval. The government just said, uh, you know, get a little bit of a certificate here and, and have at it. Wow. Well, yeah. let's get some definitions under the belt too, because I know that I at least was confused about this for a while until we'd had a conversation about this previously, but there is psilocybin is the molecule that is found in psilocybin mushrooms, Yes. Um, but it also is produced by some companies. I know, for example, Compass, which you mentioned, they work on synthetic psilocybin. So it's yes. only that molecule. Whereas what I'm get, gathering from the treatment regime and Oregon will be the whole mushroom that has psilocybin plus other molecules that are present in the mushroom. Is that correct? Like, Absolutely. and how do we differentiate between these products on the market? If someone's right. looking to do this, how, you know, and is there a benefit or risk to one or the other? Um, yeah. 
Yeah, there's probably more risk to the mushrooms because they got funky stuff in them, right? And there, there, there is a person or two who died from 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 mushrooms. Um, you were right. Uh, all the commercial entities, you, uh, you know, even the nonprofits. So USONA, we synthesize it from, you know, from in, in a lab. You know, basically it comes mm -hmm. from oil, like everything else in the modern world, right? <laughs> the thing. Um, there is a company called Fluence, which is based out of British Columbia, that is actually trying to get FDA approval for for mushroom-based psilocybin. And, and I was at a meeting in Holland. The guy explained it to me, and I didn't understand it. But anyway, there, there, there so there is, but but it, it, it's not just going to be giving you a mushroom. It has to have enough purity that the FDA approves it. Alex Sherwood, who's this kind of really brilliant chemist at USONA Institute, um, basically analyzed everything that exists in a mushroom, in a psilocybin mushroom, and. It, the whole act is pretty much psilocybin. So there's not a lot of scientific evidence for something called entourage effects, you know? Yeah. Might, that was another thing I was wondering yeah. about entourage is yeah. a common. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So again, based, and he's published that based on that work, it, it doesn't seem like there's really, really strong entourage effects. So really when you do mushrooms, you really mostly do in psilocybin, although the dosage is much more unpredictable. The other interesting thing is that psilocybin is a pro drug. So psilocybin is not what gives you the trip. It's actually its first metabolite, psilocin, which mm -hmm. does the deed. And there are companies trying to produce and get FDA approval for psilocin. It's a challenging molecule. It breaks down really easily. It's, it's not such an easy thing to work with. Um, but so there's multiple layers. It's really interesting. There's mushrooms and that has a bunch of stuff. <laughs> And then there's USONA and Compass and all these guys like the, us that are that are synthesizing, you know, 99.9% .9 pure psilocybin. You, you take that synthesized psilocybin, put it in a body, almost immediately it gets converted to psilocin. And there's yeah. companies working to develop psilocin. So you skip the psilocybin. Is that, is that more of just an IP play is what I'm guessing for psilocybin? Oh, yeah. yeah, that's like, yeah. 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 Intellectual property for the listeners. Uh, the, the, the <laughs> yeah. The search for intellectual. So this has been this fascinating subtext of this whole psychedelic development. So, you know, Sandoz marketed LSD and marketed psilocybin uh, in the 50s, uh, into the early mm -hmm. 60s. They sent it to doctors all over the world and said, what can you do with this? This is interesting stuff. You know, is there anything you can do with it? So so when we started all this, it, it just seemed obvious to us that this was all in the public domain. But no, there have been tons. Every company that's commercial is trying to patent something. And like I say, some of the extreme things are there's patents in place for for the music you listen to. There's a patent for, you know, that you can lie down on a couch. I mean, it's amazing the things people are. And then, you know, people are trying to, you know, maybe if we use a dissolving strip or maybe we do this, you know, sort of desperate attempts to find something that they can get intellectual property on. And this is partly why some of these companies are crashing, though. You know, again, yeah. the value proposition of doing that, you know. So you spend billions of dollars and develop psilocin. Maybe get a little bitty bit more control compared to psilocybin, but is it worth, you know, charging the patient an extra twenty thousand dollars? Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially you know, you mentioned this early on in in, the, in our discussion is you know, especially in consideration of the indigenous heritage of these therapies, this is something that's been held in communities and used, you know, I would imagine in many cases at no cost or very low cost um, to help members of the community, and it's it is interesting that the whole commercial <laughs> push. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it is important though. We do need new therapies desperately to help patients deal with these, with these challenges of, of depression, because it really, I mean, quality of life is, is just, you know, really, oh, really terrible. Awful. Oh, oh, it's awful. Yeah. 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 So, well, let's talk a little bit more about 
dosing. Another term that I'm sure many of the listeners have heard of is something called micro dosing. You've talked about large single doses and kind of the clinical evidence that's beginning to emerge around, you know, how that can help improve outcomes with depression. But is there anything known about microdosing? And maybe can you just explain what is microdosing? Yeah, sure. So microdosing is super, super, uh, it's, 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 it's a really hot topic. I mean, it's got its own conventions. Microdosing is the idea that you can repeatedly take low doses of a psychedelic like LSD or psilocybin, a low enough dose that you don't have a trip. You don't, you don't have any obvious change mm -hmm. in your perception, right? And you can do that every couple of few days, and it's going to enhance your creativity. It's going to help your anxiety. It's going to help your depression. It's going to help everything, right? It's like this sort of miracle cure. There was a famous book uh, about microdosing on a woman in Berkeley. I'm blocking her name now, too. But it was, you know, she microdosed for a month, and she'd been struggling with a kind of bipolar depression and had this miracle cure. So a lot of interest in that, right? Because... Um, you know, if it's something, generally people don't do it every day because one of the interesting things about these 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 psychedelic molecules is they they work by hooking up with a serotonin receptor called the five HC two A receptor, and they immediately make that receptor go away. Right. So this mm. is why like, if you do LSD every day within a couple of days, you don't have an experience. It, the the meth it it self it self controls and regulates its own method of of inducing mm -hmm. effect. Right? It becomes. So people don't do it every day because they want to get the effect. They typically do it every four or five days, take a little dose, right? And and so there, there's all sorts of, of of large scale studies where they just ask people survey stuff like, you know, you know, if you're microdosing, do you think it's helped you? And oh my God, dude, absolutely the effects are huge. There have been two small studies where they actually did more rigorous, where they can they basically compared it to placebo. One was done by Imperial College in London. One was done at, at Northwestern. In both of those studies, the entire effect was accounted for by placebo factors. There was no evidence that the microdosing itself was doing anything relevant to how you to your creativity or, or how you thought or felt. And and the only thing that did predict response was how much you believed in microdosing, right? So you know, <laughs> if you really really yeah. microdosing, you're going to get a benefit whether you get placebo or microdosing, right? So so at this point. Uh, and, and people get mad at me when I say this, but at this point, the data we have suggests that unlike high doses, microdosing, there's not evidence that it has specific biological effects that, that account for changes over and above the incredible power of placebo, right? I mean, that that's yeah. really... Now, there, there are going to be big studies, and we'll see. I, I may eat my words. Big, big studies may show an effect, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't invest in it. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Then the question, of course, uh, Cassie is, okay, well, let's say it's showing it doesn't have any, it's just a placebo, right? Do you tell people to do it? They swear that it's making all the difference in their life. It's like Dumbo's feather, you know, from the old Disney movie. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I love that movie. <laughs> yeah. These are these sort of interesting ethical questions. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. Well, I guess here's the other question. Okay, if, if you are seeing in, in the studies done so far that a single dose with certain certain patients with depression can really experience a, a relief from those symptoms. I mean, is it basically one and done or are there studies that are looking like, Oh no, you need to have a maintenance a maintenance dose every year, every six months, almost like a vaccine. Like what, how does this, how does this work? Or we just don't know yet. Is it welcome? Well, welcome to the million dollar <laughs> question in drug development. This, this is, this is yeah. the FDA's obsession and rightly so. Right. So uh, the, 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 
the field started really in, in with the publication in 2016 of two studies, one done at NYU, one done at Hopkins, in people that were depressed, anxious, and, and had a lethal cancer. In mm. that population, a single dose produced like remission in like three quarters of the people. And six months later, they were still in remission. They they that was like a cure. It's like one time, boom, oh my God. So it did give rise to this kind of one and done idea. And, and, mm -hmm. and early studies were, were more one and done type based, but the FDA has been pushing for quite a while and quite publicly pushing on the fact that depression is often a chronic condition. And so what are you going to do? You know, if, 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 if you're depressed and I, and I give you psilocybin treatment and it doesn't do anything for you, I'm sorry, you know, but if I do give it to you and you go, oh my God, for the first time in years, I feel great. And then three, four months later, you say, I'm slipping back into depression, right? What do I do? Say, well, you had your one chance. You know, I, I can't give you psilocybin. No, no way. The FDA will never go for that. So then you got to redose them. So then the question becomes, well, how many times are you going to redose them? Because, you know, doing psilocybin once or twice in a lifetime is different than doing it, say, every three or four months, right? And yeah, so, and we're talking about like big doses, not microdosing. Yeah, so. we're talking big doses. Yeah, these are all yeah. big doses. Right? So, so it's it's nobody knows, but it is definitely something that everybody is in the development space is now beginning to have to deal with mm -hmm. to try to figure out, you know, how do we do studies that will alert us to sort of an average number of doses that somebody with chronic depression that benefits from it is going to need to stay in that position. And then also the question, of course, is, and and or can we identify things that we can add to a psychedelic treatment? This is one of the things I'm getting ready to research. Um, can we identify things if I add it to the, 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 the treatment, like something afterwards, you know, can I cause the effect of the treatment to last longer? So you don't need to do the psilocybin as often. That's another really, really hot topic. But yeah. And so when you sure. say add, are you talking about other other pharma pharmacological agents, or are you talking yeah, about maybe, psychotherapy or, or yes, combinations, or wellness mm -hmm. practices, or you know, ongoing group support? We don't know. I mean, this is what yeah. we don't know. You know, the psilocybin or psychedelics in general behave more like psychotherapy than they do like an SSRI. They, it's it, what people report is, you know, I was sort of in one state of mind. And then I had this mind-blowing psychedelic experience. And now I see the world differently. I realized that I don't need to do this and that. And I realized, oh my God, you know, all the, I'm really, I thought, I felt so alone, but now I see, oh, I'm part of the human family. You know, people have this sense, yeah. of, you know, which is, you know, when psychotherapy works, it sort of does the same thing, right? You get a sense of, oh, you know, I can handle my problems or I need to see the world differently or I need to make changes in my life. Psychedelics do all those sorts of things, right? And so finding ways to intensify, I think, those effects is going to be kind of one of the promising ways forward. Not everybody agrees with that. Uh, a number of commercial entities are actually trying to develop drugs that don't have a psychedelic experience, but they would still give you long-term antidepressant relief. And so that's mm -hmm. another interesting development in this space, you know, where basically, you know, I've got a pill that was it, that was built from a psychedelic, but you can take it at home on Saturday in the morning, and by Saturday night, you'll feel great. You won't know why, and then you'll feel great for six months, right? So wow. that's something to watch too, because if anybody can discover something like that, that's what's going to be, of course, on the market, right? Because yeah. one of the challenges of psychedelic therapy is, as currently construed, you need two therapists in the room with you. For psilocybin, they're usually there for eight hours. 
generally before a patient gets the dosing with psilocybin, they spend six to eight hours meeting with those two therapists, trying to mm -hmm. talk about what may happen, getting a sense of their depression, building rapport. And then generally, you know, there's a couple of hours at least of, of what we call integration afterwards, where you meet with the therapist and try to make sense of your experience. This so, sounds like a traditional ceremony to me. Yeah, it is. I mean, in different, in different cultures, this is how shaman in, in many different cultures that use psychedelics it's very similar to what they very do. Very It's, oh, yes, it's not just here's here's a mushroom. It's a lot of talking, a lot of absolutely. yeah, and then being with them, and then processing the, their experience afterwards. I mean, yeah. So it's this is something we do really badly in Western medicine mm -hmm. is the time to do those kind of things. Um, there's a big push towards like here's a pill, you know, in and out of the office in 20 minutes. Um, is our medical system equipped to do this? Is this part of the reason why we're going to this kind of sitter model? I mean, yeah, it's a yes. Well, that great question. And, and this is, so either the, you know, the, one of two things is going to, one of two extremes may happen. Mm -hmm. One is that the medical system breaks the psychedelic, right? So basically somebody discovers one that doesn't have any experience. You can take it at home. Or I just saw this really uh, fascinating, uh, disturbing thing where a guy basically did a ketamine, which is kind of like a psychedelic. He did a, a session with a chatbot as the therapist. Oh my gosh! Oh, like really a was. chat GPT kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. That Google chat. Yeah, Google that, chat. That sounds GPT horrifying to me. Oh, oh it's God. really it's it's a wild <laughs> article because the the, wow. the chat GPT went through the whole. So so you know it may be that chatbots are in the room with you, right? I mean, if you're trying oh. to save money, right? I mean, yeah, I know it's really. This is like. This is it's, just not the right direction to go. <laughs> yeah. but, is, but, you know, the market, the market, either that or psychedelics will change how we do mental health. And it, it, they may meet yeah. in the middle. But, Maybe. you know, one of the hopes of psychedelics is that they do bring the human back into mental health, that it is a, a marriage of pharmacology and psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. I, I, it'll be that to the degree that it can't be beaten by something cheaper. Right. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. I think we have to be realistic about it. You're right. I mean, that is, who knows who's trying to patent the new chat bot for your psychedelic trip. That's oh, already, yeah, I can you know, that. yeah, like, I can that's uh, right. You know, um, yeah. Well, here's, here's, here's a question because, you know, some members of the audience may have had a recreational experience with psychedelics. Many probably have not. And I'm wondering what can you share with us about the process that a person goes through you know, that you've read about or, or seen in your patients, like what do they, what do they report going through when they take, let's say if you're taking a mushroom preparation, like what are the stages of that process? Because it is kind of mysterious. We know it's mind blowing, but what actually happens? Like, and is what it happens different for each person? What happens in the personal's experience? Do, I mean, is it, is it fast? Is it, how long does it last? Wow. Are there side effects? Do you feel mm -hmm. sick or nauseous? I mean, I can, yes. I can imagine if you're, you know, there's all kinds of images passing through your mind. So maybe that can make people disoriented. Um, do you become sleepy? Do you become wired? Like what's actually happening during right. this process? Right. Um, the, the, the answer is we're definitely more wired than sleepy. Uh, people definitely get people definitely get uh, woken up. Um, but I can tell you exactly. So here you go. You're going to take a pill. You're going to take the mushrooms. You take it and nothing happens for the first, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes, except if you're a regular person and you've never done it before, you're nervous as all heck because you don't know yeah. what's going to happen, right? You're and waiting then, for it to hit you. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then very frequently, now, some of them are more intense than others. Like I, So the serotonin antidepressants tend to upset the stomach, right? So people... Mm -hmm 
will begin to feel sometimes kind of nauseous. Obviously, with ayahuasca, you know, vomiting is almost always that happens. Yeah. Psilocybin, a lot less so, but but many people get a little nauseated. And and it also affects uh, body temperature regulation. So people get just, people often feel cold. Um, oh. So they'll get chilled, they'll feel a little bit nauseous, a, a little bit crappy sort of sometimes. And mm -hmm. then on average, about 60 minutes in, it, you'll start having some weird things happen. So in studies, the way we do it is we have people lay down on the couch and we ask them to wear an eye shade so that, you know, they're not distracted. And then we, we, we have them wear, you know, like what you're wearing, you know, with the headphones mm -hmm. and we play evocative music. Right. And so there with the headset, with the head. The, with the eye shade, just on. kind of like instrumental. What do you mean by yeah, rock? yeah, it's instrumental. Kind of we, like we we tend relaxing. to relaxing. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, and sometimes we sometimes we stack the deck a little bit and play music that would make you kind of cry. You know, get you all emotional, right? You know. Uh -huh. um, but yes, instrumental. We try to stay away from from lyrics because that it sort of can co-op people because music becomes unbelievably powerful when you're in a psychedelic state. Mm -hmm. So then, in the dark with the eye shades on, you begin to see funny things. That's usually the first thing that happens, and you begin to sort of you begin to go into this weird state and the music often becomes like this incredibly powerful force. People will say that they feel like the, the music is actually like driving them. You know, it's not the drug, it's the music, you know? Hmm. And then uh, the emotional stuff starts for people. And some people are lucky and they just go straight into bliss. They're like, Oh my God, you know, I'm connected with the universe. I'm a child of the universe. You know, life is so meaningful. I, 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 oh, there's a meaning to life, you know, what we call mystical experience where they feel this hard to articulate sense of, of, of mm -hmm. you know, euphoric mood, deep connection with the world. That's hard to describe sense of purpose, sense of meaning. When that happens, people almost always have good long-term outcomes in terms of depression, anxiety, drink, and drug. But something else happens for a lot of people, especially people with depression, which is that they can have very difficult experiences. So that that uh, as they're starting to go into this seeing weird stuff and all that, um, they will have whatever they've been trying to avoid in their life. So whatever the deep emotional issue is that is partly driving your depression because you can't face it, gets pulled up. The drugs have this remarkable ability to just grab it and stick it right in front of your face. And then that's horrible for people. People weep and cry. I mean, so many people that benefited from these agents said, I would pay you never to do that again. I mean, what a painful, horrible experience, you know, I mean, because so it just, forces you to address fe yeah, and, and, fears yeah. and trauma. Okay. In, in a horribly uh, often, you know, just embodied way. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, wow. so people will often go through these very difficult experiences. Now, the more difficult the experience, if you deal with it and have a sense of resolution to it at the end, the better effect you get. It's really okay. weird. Right? Yeah. It's, like facing your, it's like catharsis, like facing your problems. And, mm -hmm. and there's a, in general, the that stuff comes first. And then if you get a sense of relief or a sense of dealing with it, then you can sometimes go into that more euphoric, mystical, like, oh, you know, now that I've sort of dealt with my personal issues, peace. I am mm -hmm. a child of the universe and peace and, you know. So that's often the 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 and the the, the 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 staging of things, and then with psilocybin, let's say after about four hours, five hours, most people begin to come down, and generally by six or seven hours out, people will say, "Oh, it's over." Now it's not really over. People are still subtly altered, which is why you don't want to be driving, you don't want to be doing anything mm -hmm. like that. But you're not you're, the walls aren't breathing anymore. You're not you know you're you're. Yeah. Kind of but then most people get what's called an afterglow, 
And the afterglow period can last anywhere from a week to two where you're kind of in a different state. You tend to be more open. You tend to be more emotional. You tend to be, uh, if things have gone well for you, you tend to be happier, you, you know, you, you, stuff that, you know, you know, your, your, your ex, ex-husband, your ex-wife is giving you hell. And instead of going like, oh, what a, you go, oh, I feel bad for them. You know, like that, right. You know, and that last yeah. That last stress differently than yeah you just you just mm-hmm. yeah you know you you're more tolerant and more and more filled with gratitude and life just looks different and then that fades in a week or two usually but then many people uh, even though that immediate thing is faded people still seem to get this benefit from the experience you know just like just like really horrible experiences can set you up for long-term post-traumatic stress disorder long after the thing mm-hmm. itself yeah sort of the opposite, but same idea that the, the psychedelic experience was so surprising and so intense and so meaningful that people could, it sort of stays with them and, and it seems to help them. And the, very many times uh, patients in the studies will say, you know, yeah, I, I, I had troubles in my life again, but it was like a touchstone. I could remember the, the insights from that session and they're still alive enough for me that, that they helped me sort of cope. So that's sort of the arc. Now, mm-hmm. some agents last longer, like mescaline it can last like 14 hours. LSD is a longer one. There's a lot of interest in, in more rapid acting agents. The one that right now has gotten the most interest is this thing called 5-methoxy DMT or 5-MeO-DMT, which mostly uh, traditionally comes from the, the uh, parotid glands of Sonoran desert toads, but is now being synthesized. That's a very rapid you know, if you if you smoke it or inhale it, it lasts for about fifteen minutes. If you if you do it through an IM injection, you get about forty minutes. So DMT very, very like rapidly degrades, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it rapidly degrades. That's right. Wow. Oh my gosh, there's so many different things, and again, a lot of these are tied. This is a medicine where healers would take these along with their their patients or use them as as ways to think through problems or sort out what their condition was or how to, mm-hmm. how to heal them, but also, you know, in cases give to patients. I mean, it's a really exciting area of research. I could talk to you about this for hours and hours and, like, and we didn't even get to, you know, the, the other thing I wanted to address is, you know, this new initiative that you're also leading up at Emory around spirituality and health. And I know we're almost out of time, but maybe you could give us just a little bit of insight into what's happening there. And then, you know, what we should keep an eye out for in terms of new work coming out or where folks can follow you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, right. So Emory has founded this just remarkably unique center for psychedelic research. That's a joint project between psychiatry, which traditionally is very scientific biology based and spiritual health, which are the chaplains, but we now call ourselves spiritual health clinicians. I I direct research for them. Psychedelics induce spiritual experiences in almost everybody that takes them to one degree or other at these higher doses. I mean, whatever you call spiritual, these things do it right. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't fit very well with a Western scientific understanding of drug action. And so there's this sort of, it's not being looked at as rigorously as it might. And Emory has this huge uh, expertise in spiritual health. You know, they got the largest chapter mm-hmm. training program in the world. And we've been doing studies looking like real studies, looking at how can we enhance the ability of spiritual health clinicians to, you know, to take care of people. Part of that now has been that the spiritual health clinicians, chaplains are becoming guides or therapists in psychedelic studies. So Ali John Zarabi is running a study in the can- in Winship Cancer Center uh, where they're giving psilocybin to folks that are in palliative care and and uh, chaplains are one of the two therapists. So the center is really fascinating. We're having a day-long 
um, a science on spirituality symposium on April 1st. That is a virtual event and an in-person event for people that are in Atlanta, partly talking about spiritual health, partly talking about psychedelics. Um, so that's a really interesting, uh, to me, one of the most interesting developments in the country is this actual center that's going to rigorously study the role of spirituality, both in terms of benefits and harms with psychedelics. You can keep an eye on USONA Institute. Uh, we have completed a large phase two study, which uh, in people with major depression that um, I hope we'll see published by the end of the year. Um, and, uh, you know, just in general, keep an eye on this space because it really, there's just a number of, there's a number of, of now online entities that report, you know, on a very regular basis about developments and watch the legalization stuff. Keep an eye on yeah. Colorado. They're going to do things differently than Oregon. And I think hopefully uh, more in a therapeutically appropriate way. We'll see, but I, I think that's going to be the case. Well, I'm excited to see more and more of these clinical studies and also long-term studies come out because yeah. um, it, there's just a huge need um, for, yeah, for innovation and, and mental health care. And I think this is exciting, really yeah. exciting. Yeah. And for the listeners too, we will have a session, a symposium on, on psychedelics from traditional medicine to modern medical practice at the joint conference at the Society for Economic Botany and Biology. I've been talking a lot about the conference on the show. And again, you can check that out. You can also... Um, register for uh, for virtual attendance if, if you're not able to make it to Atlanta. Well, great. Well, thanks so much, Chuck, for coming on the show. This has been enlightening. It's it's such a privilege to be able to talk to you and learn. I mean, I learned so much during this episode. I know that our audience did as well. And um, I hope to have you back on the show um, soon. I know you're working on some exciting things. And so we'll definitely get you back to, to continue to share these insights. Be great. Yeah, I'd love to do it. Thanks, Kathy. Awesome. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded to you, for you today on Restream. I want to give a big shout out of thanks to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth of Co-Conspiracy Entertainment. Um, if you want to help us keep the show going, you can do that by heading over to buymeacoffee.com slash foodie pharma. Grab me a cup of joe. That will help us cover some of those production expenses um, and hosting expenses. You can also grab some great merch at mysterycontrol.com and just go to the Foodie Pharmacology um, drop-down menu. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>